We have one week until Christmas. Is anyone excited? Thank you. It, I mean, you, you can cheer. It's okay. Like, Christmas is my favorite time of the year. Uh, and so I hope you're excited, too. We, uh, we've got a lot of things on the schedule for this week. I'm sure your family does, too. Um, but I want you to focus this morning on really what the true meaning is. I hope you focus on that every day. But I hope that this series that we've called Fit for a King, uh, as we've discovered the potential symbolism of the different gifts that the wise men brought months, if not years later, to celebrate Jesus' birth. We've looked at the potential symbolism of those gifts, and we have identified deeper who Jesus is. And today, we are going to focus on uh, Jesus being our sacrifice. We're going to do that by uh, remembering the three different gifts of the wise men, the gold, and frankincense, and today we mention myrrh. You might ask, what is myrrh? Myrrh is a residue. Actually, there are three things that I want to focus on. There's a lot of different things with myrrh, but first, um, three things with myrrh. A, it is a residue that secretes from the tree, from a tree, and can be used in its liquid state as an oil even used as part of the anointing oil in scripture, and it can be also hardened into a resin for incense. Two, uh, it is used prominently in perfumes, cosmetics, and medicine, and is still used today. It actually is uh, used as an antiseptic in mouthwashes, gargles, and toothpastes. It can be applied to abrasions and other minor skin ailments, and it can be used in liniment for bruises, aches, and sprains, and things like that. So you may have actually encountered myrrh without even realizing it. And then D, it is used in embalming. Uh, in scripture, we see in Mark 15, 23, they offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And in John 19, 39, it says Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Uh, so, Myrrh is actually pretty familiar. You may have encountered it, but those are some of the purposes. And as you can see, it is used in many different medicinal purposes for aches and pains and cuts and bruises and mouthwashes and different things like that. And its association has to do with kind of suffering. You get that idea of suffering. And so the potential symbolism is looking forward to when Jesus suffered and he would endure things in his life by giving up his own life on the cross. Uh, it could symbolize his death in our place. But the gift that the wise men bring or brought, uh, that doesn't prove who Jesus is. Scripture proves who Jesus is. So let's look at Scripture and learn more about the sacrifice of Jesus. Uh, we are in the book of Luke this morning, Luke chapter 2. We are going to read verses 1 all the way through 21. It'll be probably the most familiar story from Scripture that you are going to encounter, especially this time of year. Uh, but we are going to read it, and we're going to be refreshed in the truth of who Jesus is today. So, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Luke chapter 2. If you are able to, stand as we read God's holy word. starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. 
In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into, the, into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. You may be seated. This idea of Jesus' sacrifice, like I mentioned, it could be symbolized with the gift of myrrh that the wise men would bring later. But we find this detail that Jesus was a sacrifice from our reading today. Actually, in verse 11, it tells us that a Savior is born. And what we know about that word Savior is it has to be associated with saving from something. And so you might ask yourself, a Savior from what? What is he saving people from? Is it from situations, from trouble, from circumstances? Is it to fit their needs so that their life can be pleasing? What is he saving them from? And the answer is sin. The ultimate problem is sin, and the Savior, as indicated in verse 11, is here to save us from our sin. Sin is any want of conformity to the character of God, whether it be an act, disposition, or state. Sin is sin because it is different from what God is, and God is eternally holy. Sin is always against God, even though it may be directed against human beings. So even if you sin towards a person, against a person, God is the ultimate authority. All sin is against God. Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if you're wondering who is he saving from, from their sin, it's all people. Scripture tells us all have sinned. So we all have the exact same 
problem and the same need for a savior. And what is the consequence of sin? If you kept reading in Romans all the way to verse 23 of chapter six, the wages of sin is death. But the rest of that verse says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So all from verse 11 of chapter two in Luke, where it says a savior is born, suddenly we've dived in and we've said, what is he saving us from? Sin. Who needs saving? All mankind is guilty of sin and needs saving from the wages of sin, which is death. You see, God is righteous and holy. He must punish sin. God demands holiness from his creatures. He has given us a conscience, his written law, and history to remind us of this reality. Where holiness is missing, his justice demands full payment. And in all of us, holiness is missing. God demands full payment. And it's difficult to comprehend sometimes that the punishment is death. But usually when I struggle to comprehend that that is the required payment, it's because I'm not fully understanding the majesty of God how great he is, his pure holiness and justice. You see, the truth is the wages of sin is death. Your sin earns death and all have sinned. So all deserve death. But Jesus came to pay that death for you. And so we rewind back up to verse 11 where it says, a savior is born. And we realize this is good news. You see, when we're saved from our sins because of Jesus Christ, it's called salvation. Salvation is the whole work of God by which he rescues man from the eternal ruin and doom of sin and bestows on him the riches of his grace, including eternal life now and eternal glory in heaven. And so we have a savior who's born to save people, mankind, all of us from our sin. And that process of receiving the forgiveness of sins from Jesus Christ is called salvation. That is the loving work of God for his creation. Now, sometimes these things are hard to digest. They're hard to make sense of how this makes sense in the grand scheme of things. God is holy and perfect and righteous. And anything that is against that is sin. And he knew this, and he loves so much that he sent Jesus Christ. Everything that God does is perfect and has purpose and intention. And so scripture shows us this purpose and intention through his actions. It recounts over and over the very nature of God who is perfect. He is sovereign, which means he's over all things as owner and manager. He's righteous in everything he does. So that means everything he does is right. And with that in mind, I want to look through the, the passage that we just read today. With this main idea in mind. Everything that God does has purpose and intention. It answers some of our questions, like right away in verses one through seven, we see that a prophecy is fulfilled. What is happening in this story is that it says that there was a decree that went out that was calling all people back to their hometown, their family origin town, because there needed to be a census taken. But what you don't sometimes think about is that in the grand scheme of God's planning, he took a worldwide census, all for what purpose? He orchestrated this to happen 
that the, the whole world would travel back to their one location that they originated from, their family town. Do you know why? To fulfill prophecy from Micah, 6, or Micah 5, verse 2, where it says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. It's talking about Jesus. So this worldwide census goes out. God's plan used the entire world to get Mary to Bethlehem because Mary was carrying Jesus. And in Micah 5, the prophecy was that this Savior who is coming would be born in Bethlehem. God had purpose and intention. He was using the act of this governor of Syria, the act of world leaders, which seemed to the people like this was just a government thing that needed to happen. But it was God's purpose and intention to bring Mary to Bethlehem for this prophecy to be fulfilled. You may also look at some of the details in verses 1 through 7 and go, how was that planned? Like there's no room at the inn. Or that Jesus was laid in a manger after he was born. This is all part of God's plan because it shows us a bigger picture This was not an afterthought of God where suddenly the hotels were busier than he expected and so there wasn't a place. And God was sitting there saying, whoops, I guess I messed that one up. This wasn't an afterthought. It actually proves the intention of who the message of salvation is for. Because it's good news for all the people is what we see in Scripture. And so what this shows us is that all the people means that in all locations, in all conditions, in all walks of life, no matter how lowly you think you are, our Savior was born in a stable and laid in a manger. So there's no status that you have to achieve so that you suddenly can earn salvation from Jesus Christ. He came in a lowly place to prove that the message that it's for all people was in fact for all people, even the lowly, even the homeless, even the drug addicts, even the people that you don't want around you. The message of salvation through Jesus Christ is for all. So how about for you? Have you ever had a time in your life where you feel lowly? You feel unwanted? Yes, everyone has. The Savior is for you. Jesus Christ came for you through a little town that was prophesied about, through a teenage virgin, born in less than ideal conditions. He was laid in a manger. He was announced to the lowly shepherds. He was despised and rejected as he lived. Status was not part of the life of Jesus Christ on earth. It's for you and for me. So in verses 1 through 7, we see a prophecy is fulfilled from Micah 5.2 and other locations in Scripture. But then as we work through that, that announcement or that, those details surrounding Jesus' birth, we get to verses 8 through 12. And what we see is this joyful announcement. You see, the purpose of this announcement was not fear. It was joy. Here we have a group of shepherds, and suddenly the glory of the Lord shone around them. 
Have you ever had a situation where there's been this huge flash of lightning or maybe you are doing something else and you see this big flash of light? Usually what's expected is something bad, right? Usually maybe you're working on something, you're, you're wiring an outlet and suddenly there's a flash of light. That's a bad thing, right? You see, the shepherds, all of a sudden, the glory of the Lord shone around them. Do you think that their first response was, this is good news? It had to shock them. It rocked their world. They were probably scrambling mentally. They were going, something must be wrong. Protect the sheep. Protect ourselves. There is some big thing that's happening, and it's probably not good. And so the message from the angel said, hold on a minute. I'm not bringing you announcement of fear. I am bringing you an announcement of great joy. This had to be an overwhelming situation. It even tells us that the shepherds were fearful. And it should be a concerning thing that the glory of the Lord is here on earth. Because God is that great and that holy and that majestic that when we see the glory of the Lord shown around them, it should overwhelm us. God is that amazing and that powerful. He is holy and righteous, but his message is not one of fear. I know when we started this, it sounded like this was a message of fear. You're a sinner. You deserve death. And that is the truth. But the message that Jesus brings is of great joy. He doesn't bring condemnation for you. He brings joy because he is the savior and he would go in his life to become your sacrifice. This is what the angels are declaring. I bring you good news of great joy, not fear. And so the angels look at the shepherds and say, fear not. I know that's your reaction, but cling to the joy of this message. Notice that the words that the angels use in this announcement are declarative. They're not trying to drum up emotion. They are stating fact to the shepherds. They say this day, when they are announcing the birth of Jesus, this day, which means they are referencing a real day in history. And they even say in the city of David, which means it's a real day in a real location. They're declaring that this is happening. It has happened. It's not a story they're making up. It's not anything except declaring the truth. They are definitive and declarative in their statement. They continue on by not only showing that it's a real location to real people, that it's for mankind, but they also declare who Jesus is when they say, Christ the Lord. You notice something amazing. In verse 9, uh, twice, it says, the angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. And the angels say that Christ the Lord is born. It's the exact same word. The angel of the Lord appears. The glory of the Lord shone around them. You mean to tell me that the very glory of the Lord that shone around them, the same Lord was just born in a manger? Yes. The shepherds get a direct identity of Jesus given to them by the angels. The angel of the Lord told them of the glory of the Lord, which is the same Lord that's lying in the manger and born. They know right there that this is something special that happened. And it's not a message of fear. It's a message of hope and great joy. This is actually the only time 
in the Gospels, this phrase is used. It's the only time we see all the titles of Jesus brought together, Savior, Messiah, and Lord, or Christ instead of Messiah. He will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah promised to Israel. And most staggeringly of all, he is Lord. He is God. He is maker of all. He is ruler of all. This is not a message of fear for those who believe. It is one of great joy because Jesus is the Savior. But God continues in this declaration through the angels. Because mankind needs proof, don't we? You say all these things, prove it. As if the glory of the Lord shone around the angels and the angels speaking to you in declarative things and saying the truth, and as if all of that's not enough. All right, fine. God's going to give you a sign. And so there is a sign to confirm that all of these things are from God. What's the sign? Verse 12 that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. John Piper, in his comment on this verse, actually calls it a stinking feeding trough. I think sometimes we glamorize this manger. I mean, this one right over here is clean, and it's got fresh linens in it, right? And it's in a controlled temperature environment, and everything around it is clean. This was an area for animals, and animals do not clean properly after they do certain animal-type things. This was a stinking feeding trough. What mother is going to take her new baby? Whether or not it was Christ the Lord or not, which it was, but for your idea, when you have given birth, if you have, have you ever desired to put your baby in a stinking feeding trough? No. No, it's undesirable, it's unlikely, it's uncommon, but this is the sign because when the shepherds come across a baby in a feeding trough, it's so uncommon that it can only be a sign from God that this baby who is laying in that feeding trough is Jesus Christ the Lord. Nobody else is going to be putting their baby in that condition except the plan and purpose and intention of God to prove on that night that a Savior was born. You see, the lowly shepherds, they're told about the lowly birth location of the highest king, the Christ, the Savior, Jesus. But these men hear the most wonderful thing about how joy comes. It comes through the birth of a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Joy does not come from any other source. We spend so much time of our lives chasing it. Some of you think that joy is wrapped right now under the Christmas tree that you are going to rip open the present this week and you're going to find joy finally if I could just have what? What do you, what's on your list? Maybe it's been there for many, many years. Maybe it's a new obsession that you have, and you just know that when you open that on Christmas morning, you're going to tear into it, your face is going to light up, and it will overwhelm you with the joy that you've been looking for. That will go away. And I'm not minimizing the fun and the great family and the fellowship we're all going to have with gifts and presents But that joy fades. True joy 
is what the shepherds were told about. This message that we bring you, this message is for all people. And it's not something to fear. It's something to cling to. Allow it to warm your heart because this message is one of joy and true joy, eternal joy. The thing that you need most is forgiveness from your sins. The thing that you need most is reconciliation between you and God. And that's possible because of Jesus Christ. And that is the joy of this message. And if you looked at verses 13 and 14, you're going to see that the shepherds understand this with their joyful response. You see, this announcement was filled with joy, and it concludes with an appropriate, joyful praise. This is not a message of fear. And so when the multitude of heavenly hosts gather They're saying, draw near to this message. Don't run away in fear. Don't reject God because maybe you don't understand him. Don't run away because maybe you don't want to confront the fact that you're a sinner and you need a savior. Draw near to Jesus Christ. It's a message of joy and hope. And so we see a joyful response. There's a sign that confirms the message that a savior has been born. And that savior is not an earthly ruler, but he is the ruler of the earth, the Lord, the same Lord whose glory shone around the shepherds, the Christ who brings peace with God and not a temporary peace, but eternal peace. And so the response is fitting. The only thing that can come out of someone's mouth when they recognize the true message of who Jesus Christ is and what it has done for them is what? Glory to God. No one else can take credit for this. Mary can't take credit for this. Joseph can't take credit by navigating on a donkey successfully back to Bethlehem. There's all these things that we could say, well, you made this happen and you made this happen. It was God in his purpose and intention out of his love for you that he sent Jesus Christ. And all that we can say in response is glory to God. That's what we say in response. What's our action? Verses 15 through 20 show action. We see worship in action. The shepherds went to see. I want to show you something that's interesting that jumped out to me. And my oldest son is probably going to hate this, but it's an interesting factoid found in verse 16. We think that the shepherds were alone here. It says, The shepherds went, but who did they go with? It says, and they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph. I can't find anywhere else where there's someone named haste in the Bible, but they say the shepherds went with haste. So they found, I know that was bad, wasn't it? I told him it was going to be bad, but he he loves it. He's going to get home later and laugh. The shepherds went with haste. They went quickly because they hear this joyful message and they have this joyful response of saying, glory to God in the highest is what they hear from the multitude of heavenly hosts. And they can't help but do what? Go. We have to go see what's happening. We have to have a part in this. We can't just hear about it. We can't just be overwhelmed by its message. We have to go and do something. And so we see worship in action. We see the shepherds proclaim the news. But I want you to notice in verse 17 what they proclaim. It tells us that they went and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. So what did they do? 
in their worship? What did they do when they got excited to see that the truth was right in front of them? They proclaimed the truth, the saying that had already been told to them. They repeated it. For all to hear, they proclaimed the truth. Of course they were going to be excited and passionate, and they were going to express their joy of knowing that this statement was true, but they didn't take that experience and then go proclaim their experience to people. They took the message of truth that had already been declared to them, and they were careful to repeat it in its fullest, in honesty, so that the truth is never distorted. What a message for us to maintain the truth of Scripture rather than twist it or take a verse and let it overwhelm us and then we go share our experience to somebody. We are supposed to share the truth and the shepherds took in worship the message that they had already received and they made it known to people. The message from the Lord about the Lord is what they proclaimed. And Mary is treasuring the truth and surrounding events of what's happening. It says that she pondered these things, which means that she cherished it. As a mom, she sat there soaking in the moments that she knew were going to go too quickly. And as a parent, you know that time goes so fast. And here's Mary trying to take it all in, and she's cherishing the truth of what's happening in front of her, surrounding her precious baby wondering what is going to happen. How glorious is this child that I have right in front of me? She's taking it all into heart, the truth of who he was. And after we read that, we see in verse 20, yet again, the shepherds glorify and praise God because the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. You see another reference again. What were they proclaiming? Their experience? Their interpretation of what happened? No. The shepherds went and declared the message that came from God over and over for all to hear. They were accurate. They were careful. They weren't experiential, but they were truthfully sharing the experience that they were a part of. Those are all the verses that I wanted to cover. And I wanted to do that first because my closing is going to be brief and it's going to go back through those exact points as to why Jesus' sacrifice is so important. You see, if you remember back in the beginning where the declaration was made in verse 11, that unto you is born a Savior. That Savior is Christ the Lord. And we need saving from our sins. And so for that to happen, for a holy, righteous, just God to get full payment for this separation, this earning that we have for our sin earns death, it requires a perfect sacrifice. And none of us can provide a perfect sacrifice. The only one who can is God himself who took on flesh and became that perfect sacrifice. And so I want to go back through very briefly and I want to show you that Jesus' sacrifice was intentional and purposeful. If we believe that everything that God does is part of his plan and it's right because he can do no wrong and it all has meaning, so even Jesus being laid in a stinking feeding trough had a purpose and a plan, then we have to believe that Jesus' sacrifice was intentional and purposeful. And I see that there are two reasons in scripture that I have found that I want to point out to you. What was the point of Jesus' sacrifice? Why did God send his only son 
so that you could have eternal life? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We read it in Advent this morning. Because God is love. The God of the universe, the one who created all things, who is bigger and grander and more majestic than anything we could ever process, he loved us so much that he sent his son. Jesus' sacrifice was because of the love of God, but it was also to satisfy the justice of God. Romans 3.23 through 25, I read 3.23 earlier, let's expand it and read this passage. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Don't be scared by these bigger words. Propitiation is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath so that God becomes propitious or favorably disposed towards us. So Jesus as sacrifice took on death so that God would look favorably on those who accept Jesus Christ as their savior. No more death, no more penalty for sin, no more chains, those are broken because of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Jesus' sacrifice was intentional and purposeful because of the love of God and the justice of God. But Jesus' sacrifice also fulfilled prophecy. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 are two I want to point out. Those two predict the crucifixion and details surrounding Jesus' life. And this was a 1,000 years in the case of Psalm 22 and 700 years in the case of Isaiah 53 before any of these events actually took place. Jesus' sacrifice was intentional, purposeful, and it fulfilled prophecy. We know from these readings in Psalm and Isaiah that Jesus would be pierced, that his bones would not be broken, that there would be lots that would be cast for his clothing, that he would be rejected, that he would, be, he would die for the sins of his people. Those are the prophecies. And then we read in the Gospels and we read in 2 Corinthians, in John, in Matthew, in Luke, that that's exactly what happened in his life. Jesus fulfilled the prophecy about him. His sacrifice was predicted and it was fulfilled. Jesus' sacrifice also is joyful news. Jesus on the cross in John 19 says, it is finished. Which means that he is the fulfillment of all of this prophecy. He is the one who will take all of the sins of mankind and finalize it. There is nothing else to be done except Jesus Christ on the cross. We don't need to add anything to it. Jesus did it all, and he declared it is finished, which means it's done, it's complete, it's full. Our payment for sins, if we could pay, would have to be eternal, and it still wouldn't qualify. That is why Jesus had to be a substitution. He had to become a sacrifice for us. John Walvoord says this, the substitutionary work of Christ upon the cross is infinitely perfect in its sufficiency. Therefore, the sinner who trusts in Christ is not only forgiven, but he is even justified forever. The work of Jesus Christ is done. 
In John 3.16, the beginning part where I talked about the love of God for the entire world would send his son, the rest of that verse says that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. You see, the message of Jesus going to the cross and dying for our sins is actually joyful news. And when we understand that that news is for us, that he went to the cross for us, that we can have forgiveness of our sins so that we are in right relationship with God Almighty, it demands a joyful response, just like we saw with the shepherds, just like we saw with the multitude of heavenly hosts that are proclaiming glory to God in the highest. We understand the sacrifice of Jesus and it produces a joyful response. In Luke 10, 20, it says, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In Psalm 13, 5, it says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. You see, the depth of the sacrifice is an indication of the depth of love that Jesus has for you. And it's with sadness to realize that Jesus had to die because of you and because of me, but it's with great joy that I realize that I'm free because of it, that his sacrifice is complete. It, it demands a joyful response. And when we have joy because of our salvation, then Jesus' sacrifice demands worship in action. We saw that the shepherds took all of that joy that they had and they expressed the truth. They went out to everyone that would hear them and they proclaimed the truth of what had been told to them. And so for us, when we understand the joy of our salvation, it demands action. One week from today, we're going to gather and we're going to worship Jesus Christ on Christmas Day. We're going to shout praise. We're going to declare his might. We're going to bring worship that is fit for a king, the king, Jesus. You see, the, the shepherds took their worship on the road, telling everyone the truth of what they had seen and been through, and their worship became a witness. But what about you today? Are you prepared to worship right now? What about this afternoon? It might be easy to worship right now because we're in that atmosphere. You're surrounded by people who are like-minded, and so it's easy to declare that Jesus Christ saves, right? But what about this afternoon if maybe some of you are making Christmas cookies and you burn the first batch? Or maybe you have on the calendar that family is coming on Saturday and they show up on Friday, and you didn't even want them there in the first place. Or maybe you go to your garage to jump in your car to go on a last-minute gift mission, and you have a flat tire. Your mind probably is not immediately on the sacrifice of Jesus, but his sacrifice and the new life and eternity that he provides for us should always be fresh enough on our minds so that every circumstance we encounter, we are sifting through all of those experiences with the truth that Jesus Christ went to the cross for me. It gives us the right perspective because no matter what's happening, we can always proclaim his worth. We can always shout his glory because of what he has done for us. You see, we were meant to worship. We were meant to bring him glory. And so today the challenge is, are you prepared to declare that glory? Are you prepared in your heart to proclaim that Jesus Christ saves? 
we were originally scheduled to sing this particular song called Jesus Saves, but some details had to be adjusted last minute because of sickness. So we have a different song that we'll end with, but I want to read to you the lyrics of this song that's called Jesus Saves. Hear the host of angels sing glory to the newborn king and the sounding joy repeating that Jesus saves. See the humblest hearts adore him and even the wisest bow before him. See the sky alive with praise, melting darkness in its blaze. There is light forevermore because Jesus saves. He will live our sorrow sharing. He will die our burden bearing. It is done, we'll shout the cross. Christ has paid redemption's cost while the empty tomb is declaring that Jesus saves. Freedom is calling, chains are falling. Hope is dawning bright and true. Day is breaking, night is quaking. God is making all things new because Jesus saves. Oh, to grace how great a debtor are the saints who shout together, rising up so vast and strong, lifting up salvation's song. The redeemed will sing forever that Jesus saves. Jesus Christ, born so that he could live a perfect life to become the only qualifying sacrifice to pay the penalty for your sins. And then he would rise again three days later, overcoming death that nothing is more powerful than our God. Our Savior lives, and we get to live in eternity with him, and we can have joy and hope in that right now because Jesus saves. He was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that's the final song we're going to sing today. We're going to declare that Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel. Would you pray? Father, I thank you for the time that we had this morning to be able to study your word and to be refreshed in the understanding of who Jesus is. I pray that we would not take for granted what we are declaring, what we are celebrating this week as we declare it to be Christmas, the day of Jesus' birth. This is a historical, real event that was announced by the angels on a real day in a real place, and it is a message that is for real people, and we are those people who need this message that Jesus saves. God, you are not just a God who sits high and mighty, even though you are high and mighty. You are a God who gives us a message of hope and of great joy, not of one to fear. And I pray that each of us this morning would understand the need that we have for a Savior. Because if we don't understand that we need a Savior, then it is a message of fear. But you bring hope, you bring life, and you brought it through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so today, as many of us celebrate our salvation in Jesus Christ, Maybe there's some that don't have salvation in Jesus Christ just yet. And maybe this is going to be the first Christmas where they truly understand that the birth of this baby in a feeding trough is actually their savior.
So Lord, if there's anyone wrestling with that this morning, would you break down any fear that they have? And would you refresh them in the understanding that you bring a message of joy for them? And would you bring them to their knees today? There are people that will come forward if you need to come forward and declare Jesus Christ as your Savior. There are people next to you that will pray with you. But I know one thing, that there will not be any glaring looks. There will just be celebration if you give your life to Jesus Christ today. May we all gather right now and declare Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel, God with us, is a message worth declaring. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.